Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. Please stand as we honor God with his word. Romans 11, 17 through 24. This is the word of the living God. But if some of the branches were broken off in you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but if you stand fast, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, this is the word of the Almighty God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the sovereign Lord God, the God who decrees the end from the beginning, the God of hope. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that you give us the, the green light, in a sense, to weep with those who weep. You give us the okay to rejoice with those who rejoice and even command us to rejoice with those who rejoice, God. And Father, we thank you, God, so much that we have the ability, as hard as it is at times, to bear each other's burdens as we fulfill by your grace, as Brother Julius told us so powerfully this morning. We fulfill the law of Christ as we work out that salvation that you instilled in us. And we thank you, Father, for this passage here that we are able now to come before you in your word. And we thank you, God, as, as Sister Cynthia has proclaimed to us that you're a God that is always working. Father, we pray that today will be the day of salvation. 
that in concordance to our, that powerful testimony and as we sing the songs of praises to you with Brother Julius as you predestined him to preach this sermon today, Lord. That today will be the day that you bring many out of the grave. We love you, Lord. We praise you, God. We thank you, God, that these prayers are not wasted, as Cynthia said, that we know that these prayers go to you. We can go to you boldly because of your son, the only way to you. We pray these prayers in his name. Amen. Morning, afternoon, congregation. What comes to mind when you think of the word homelessness? Homelessness. What images do you come up with? You may have had personal experiences with the term, the word, persons who might have overcome it or have gone through it in their past. We may know people, persons who might have been homeless. Uh, whatever our opinions or our views are, the fact is that we all have in one way uh, have some experience with the word or know people who have been affected by it. And so to hear the word homelessness should invoke some images in our mind. To see a person without a stable place to live, perhaps their clothes are dirty, and worn out. Their hygiene might be lacking. Uh, they're unable to consistently secure, secure meals to eat. Personal experience with people afflicted with such things should, I hope, generate and provoke empathy within us. If you've been homeless, you don't look at a homeless person the same way that others might. You look beyond the clothes, you look beyond the situation, you see past a great deal in, in the appearance because as a person who has presumably gone through uh, such a situation, you tend to empathize a great deal more. You are clearly going to empathize more than you're going to criticize. You are faster to land a hand than you are to turn your face for fear that they may ask you for a dollar or two. Your response shows that you care and that you understand. It also should allow you to realize with humility that you, or I for that matter, could be in that very same place as well. It doesn't arrogantly consider that your job or your savings or your bank account um, simply wouldn't allow you to be in that place. You don't have an arrogant posture or attitude that says that would never ever happen to me. If we do have that attitude or posture, we do well to consider Job, who comparatively possessed way more than us, but lost all of it, including even his will to live. Men have lost more than we have. More than we have. And so we shouldn't think that the same thing couldn't happen to us as well. We should seriously, seriously consider the question and question any arrogance that would prevent us from realizing the very simple 
and fundamental truth. And that truth is that there is a reason why in our daily prayers we should be requesting that the Lord provide us this day our daily bread. We may take into account the fact that we have money in the bank. We may take into account the fact that our jobs seem as secure as we think they are. But still, as a Christian, our attitude and our posture is to thank the Lord and to request for daily bread. This is the posture of the Christian. He has the attitude and the understanding that he depends on God for every single thing. According to endhomelessness.org, 11.8% of the U.S. population are at risk for homelessness. That figure, by their estimates, amounts to about 3.8, uh, 38, excuse me, 38.1 million people. Now, that's more than the population of New York State. And it's just shy of the total for California in terms of population. And so those figures are striking and indeed alarming. And if you've walked around the city, you've noticed that homelessness definitely has been on the rise. But there are figures that are far more concerning for us. According to Barna, an estimated 73 million adults are presently unchurched. When teens and children are added, the total swells to roughly 100 million Americans. Now, why does that matter? Why does the discussion on homelessness and the connection to unchurched people matter with regards to the text? The truth is, Christians know about what homelessness feels like. We are able to identify with it. We consider Eden, in Genesis, the eviction of Adam and Eve due to sin. We have recognized from that the nature of sin and what it does in alienating us from security from God. We understand the New Jerusalem and how Abraham sought after it, a city whose builder is God, that God had promised Abraham that he himself would build out from him a people who would be blessed and would be made great, saying, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And that promise applies implies that God himself would provide an environment for his descendants of Abraham in which the promise would be fulfilled. And it's a promise that Abraham held to and cling to while he lived in tents. It's an attitude and it's a posture that we as Christians have as we live in these mortal bodies and go homes to where we, where we live, recognizing that where we are isn't our final destination but that we as believers are on the direction, on the trajectory to a place where God is the builder and the maker of that city. A place in which we can rest in him and acknowledge and feel the security, the pleasantness, the blessedness of knowing him and seeing him face to face and knowing what home truly feels like. To be home, to be in the place where you need to be, a place that is enjoyable, happy, sheltering, and much more 
is something that every man, woman on this earth desires. We as Christians know what that is. But unbelievers, they search for it high and low. The place of security, the place of being able to rest. Mankind does not find any joy fulfilled in their wrestling and their constant looking for this shelter, this place where they can love and laugh and truly experience fullness, a fullness that they were truly intended to experience. We understand that that comes when we honor God, when we love on him, when we praise him, when we, as we discuss in Sunday school, do good works unto him in faith, pleasing him, glorifying his name. The vine, the root, which God is the sustenance of, is a place where we all need to be. Whether you be a Christian or whether you not be, there is no rest that compares to it. And so the theme for today is the resting, the sustenance of God is not a provision to be taken arrogantly. That although we experience and we enjoy what it is to love on the Lord and to feel that peace and that comfort, there is indeed the danger that we will be arrogant in what we have been given. And so verse 17 provokes us to notice the nature of the provision. Verse 17 says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. This illustration here is taken from the practice of those who engraft olive trees. And if you've been following the devotionals, there's been um, some discussion on engrafting that is very interesting for you to read. If you happen to miss that day, I definitely recommend that you, um, you touch base on that. The useless branches or, or, or the ones that are, are bearing poor fruit are cut off and a, a better kind are, in, are inserted. Now, although it would seem that in the natural practice of engrafting, one would take a shoot from an olive tree that bears good fruit, though it does not grow very well, and graft it into a wild olive shoot whose fruit is poor, but which grows strongly. The result is ultimately a tree with vigorous growth which bears very good olives. This is the process that Paul is pointing to. However, he looks at the grafting of a wild olive into the stock of a good olive tree and later even the grafting back of some of the good olive branches that have been cut out. The wild olive was an unfruitful or its fruit was very imperfect and useless. The meaning here is that the Gentiles had been like the wild olive, unfaithful, uncultivated in the practice of the law and true religion. And so they were raised up in the, in the wildness and in sin being their nature. The Jews had been like a cultivated olive branch, long under the training and the blessing of God. And so the picture that Paul is painting here is, that, is of a healthy olive tree that has wild olives, branches that are grafted in for the sake of them being fruitful. The nature of the provision is to notice that the wild olive shoot the Gentiles are 
being brought in. They're being grafted in so that they may produce holiness, so that they may walk in faithfulness. This is a privilege. This is a, an honor that is not native to us. It does not belong to us. It is something that has been given. It's been something that's been manufactured for your sake, for my sake. We are not native to the olive tree, but have been grafted in for the sake of producing fruit. This should especially hit with us because we should notice that salvation, the very provision for the sin that affects and afflicts all mankind, is something that has been provided by way of the Jews, by way of the branches that have been cut out. God offers salvation to men everywhere without respect of persons. On the basis of their faith, for with God there is no partiality. We understand that from Romans 2.11. God is free from bias. He, he is in no way a judge who uh, decides to give to one over the other based off of things, but simply for his good pleasure, for the good pleasure of God. And so salvation is given to the Gentiles and Jews alike on exactly the same grounds. God gave his son because he loved the world and for no other reason. For his glory. Not for the Jews only, although it may seem that way. But that all men would be saved. And the Lord invites all of his children saying, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. However, the salvation that is from the Jews cannot be proclaimed or lived apart from the Jews. This is not to say that innumerable Christians, uh, indeed a vast majority of Christians worldwide, um, experience their faith uh, without a consciousness or a, a, a sheer understanding of the role that the Jews play in this. It becomes hard to move away from that when we realize that the Word of God is rich with Jewish customs and history, is saturated with characters who are Jewish. To ignore the Jewish tone of the Bible is to ignore the intention of God that Israel would be called out from among the nations to be his son. The Jew was a devout believer in the, their called-out status. That is the doctrine of corporate election. They relished in the thought that God had selected them from all the nations of all the earth to be the recipients of the blessings and the privileges that Paul describes in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. They had no problem with viewing other nations as heathens, as people who, if they did not obey, would ultimately be cast into hell. They had the support of their beliefs in the God of salvation, the true high God. And they understood very clearly that the false gods of the land simply did not compare. And so to the Gentiles, salvation comes from the Jews. It comes from the Jews. The very branches that were used to produce the fruit of faithfulness that we see in Scripture. And so when we realize the pitfall of arrogance, 
we see that in verse 18, it points to an arrogance towards the branches because of their status of being cut off. And it says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. I read somewhere that the wild olive was often grafted into the fruitful one when it began to decay. Uh, and, and that in the process, it not only brought fruit, but caused the decaying olive to revive and flourish. This, though, isn't what Paul has in mind here. Uh, in fact, Paul is beating down the arrogance of, of anyone who would think that their grafting into this olive is in some way, shape, or form actually reviving or producing some type of life within the olive itself. He goes on to point out that the advantages occasioned to the Jews for their grafting in was an advantage that they failed to acquire. This is an occasion that we will touch on uh, in a little bit. Um, but it was not to support or give life to the root, but it was intended to become fruitful and truly producing faithfulness because they were connected and grafted into a truly healthy and sustaining root. The fact of the matter is, Christian, we are not plugged into church, we are not plugged into faith, thinking that we are in some way reviving or keeping faith alive. We don't come to church and we don't do our duty to serve and to love and to preach and to teach and to sing as something that helps God out. It's something that gives God a hand. We don't save God from the ideas that other people would have by our attendance. The fact of the matter is, is that we are plugged in to God. We are plugged into church because we need that sustenance. We need God. We need God. You don't come here to do anyone a favor. You're not helping anyone by thinking that you are doing anyone else a favor. We sit in these pews and we sing the songs we sing and we listen to the messages that we listen to because we desire to be faithful. We spoke on this in Sunday school about producing good works. And we realize when we look at the God of the scripture that this is not a God that we barter with. This is not a God that we do favors for so that we can be on his good side. The truth is that because God has loved us first and has made a deposit of his Holy Spirit into us, we are all the more inclined to do unto him, to show our gratitude, to show our faithfulness unto him by sitting in the pews. But we don't just sit, we listen. We hear with the intention of doing we listen to the songs and we sing these songs, not as if this is karaoke night, right? We do that out of an out, outward pouring gratitude of what God has done for us, what God continues to do for us, and what God intends for us to experience. 
when we go way beyond these days in this flesh. And as mentioned before in the Sunday school, we get to experience him face to face and know him as we are known. We don't do God any favors. He doesn't need anything from us. But we need him. And we do well to always remember that. And that posture of humility allows us and provokes us and screams out to us to have in no way, shape, or form any arrogance towards unfruitful branches of the Jews. They were broken off so that the Gentile shoots could be grafted in. Paul agrees with this, and he understands this, and we all understand this, but what he cautions against is any conclusion that would allow Gentile shoots, like you or me, to boast against the former branches. The Jews received no advantage from the Gentiles, but on the contrary, the Gentiles receive a great deal advantage from the Jews, from whom the gospel is sounded out, its preachers being Jews, and of whom even Christ himself, according to the flesh, came. In the same way that we are not arrogant towards homeless, knowing that in any day, we might end up where they are. We acknowledge that the very gifts and the very blessings, the very provision that we have, that God has provided, comes from him and him alone. And we know that our salvation, the very thing that God has given unto us, is not something that we should be arrogant about under any circumstances. We don't look down on anyone who isn't saved. We don't look down on anyone who is wrestling with their faith. But with all the love and with all the intention of our hearts, we pray for, we consider, we love on, because that is what God has called us to do. And this is not a faith of arrogance. This is not a faith of, of arrogance. But this is a faith of humility. I mean, humility that shows itself to be a good work and a fruit of the very salvation that you indeed truly should have. And so it becomes important to note that while Gentiles have indeed been invited into this home, this place of blessed provision, they're not to assume any superiority over the Jews. This is what the text is pointing to. But are to consider the nature of them being broken off that this was a cause of their own unbelief. And Paul desires to share that while the truth of them being broken off for the sake of the Gentiles is true, they were broken off because they were rebellious. His call for Gentiles here is to stand firm in the faith and not to presume that inclusion into the faith is not without its potential pitfalls. You can be in church a long time, brother and sister, and still end up falling by the wayside. You can have all the confidence in the word of God that you think you have and sing songs with all the energy that you can muster and may even preach or teach, and you may still fall by the wayside. You can be considered the most honorable and most knowledgeable theologian in the area who knows a great deal more than anyone 
and you can still potentially fall by the wayside. In Sunday school, we spoke about our responsibility. We have a responsibility. We acknowledge that God is indeed sovereign, but we also acknowledge that there is indeed a responsibility for us as well. And that responsibility is to guard the deposit that God has made it, that God has entrusted with you, the gospel that he has given you, the gospel that we all should be fluent in, does not simply mean that we understand facts about what the gospel is or that we can be impressive when gospel questions are asked. That with, but with that knowledge, are able to be fruitful in our living, to be faithful in our expression of what God has done. We are able to express an outward reality of an inward miracle that God has done. And that goes against any form of arrogance, any and every form of arrogance. When you know that there is not a thing that you have done that allows you to deserve to be sitting here in faithfulness unto God. When you realize that, when we realize that, we're not arrogant. We're not falling by the wayside. But with fear and with trembling, with fear and with trembling, we are considering our faith. We are considering our works. Now, a couple weeks ago, um, I uh, was telling a um, story when I was much younger and um, teaching a Sunday school class for the, for the kids. And um, yeah, it was a long time ago, yeah. So I, can, I don't have to look bad saying this. Um, and uh, we were going through Exodus and, you know, we were talking about Israel and, you know, like, you know, it's just so terrible. You know, I don't understand how they saw all these miracles. They saw all these miracles. This, the plagues. <laughs> you know, they were able to. Pillar of fire? What? What is this? And you still went to the wilderness in unbelief. This is what you do. You almost look down on them, right? You almost look at, how could you do this? How? What an arrogant posture, right? When we see God work tremendous miracles every single day, when we hear a powerful testimony like we did today, Verses 21 and 22 allow us to notice that there is indeed kindness and severity of God. There is indeed kindness and severity of God. Verse 21 says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We can consider this privilege and think that this is something we can never lose. Understanding the kindness and the severity of God leads us to understanding the unity of God. It becomes apparent that we understand it correctly so that we do not make some of the same mistakes as other people do and fashion for ourselves a God after our own making. Uh, God is generally understood to be love and kind. Uh, and at times it becomes hard to hide this loving, kind God when we consider the Old Testament, right? Uh, and so what we might end up doing is we might say, uh, okay, well, in the Old Testament, in the days of, of old, God was wrathful and mean. Um, but in the New Testament, you know, the times that reflect where we are currently, 
uh, God is all about love and kindness now, you know? All that raffle stuff, man, that, that happened a long time ago, you know, with the Jews. And they, they, just, they just didn't listen. But, you know, now we, we love God. We, we love him and he loves us. And that raff stuff is over. We do well to consider, if we know anything about God, that God is not divided in parts. He isn't love at one point and then wrathful in another, uh, as if there was some change in his nature. Uh, Wayne Grumman describes this as God's simplicity, using simple in, in a less common sense of saying non-complex or not complex or not composed of parts. And so that's just simply to say that God is indeed love. And he is indeed wrath. God is indeed kind. And he is indeed severe. So in our text, it becomes important for the readers of the Gentile descent to realize that the kindness of God is married to his severity. God can be severe. And he can be loving doing it. God is not simply a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath. If God did not refrain from rejecting the Jews who became unbelievers, assuredly he will not refrain from rejecting you under the same very circumstances. What is required? The requirement is that you continue in his kindness, that you continue in faithfulness, that you not presume that because you've been grafted in that you can have a posture of arrogance, can have an attitude that I'll never leave. Nothing can ever happen to me. It becomes necessary to note that here the scriptures are the infallible rule of faith in life. We know this. The reason why we're here today and we have faith in Christ is because we acknowledge that the scriptures are true. 100% true. All that it teaches, all that it says. They teach us the ways of God and the way that we ought to live as faithful servants. In them we find the word of life. They are our daily bread. And through them, our Redeemer speaks and he sanctifies us. Paul says that the foremost advantage of, the, of being a Jew is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God. The oracles of God were the words of God. It is to them the Jewish nation, that the words of God were entrusted. John Calvin notes, Now the oracles were committed to them for the purpose of preserving them as long as it pleased the Lord to continue his glory among them, and then of publishing them during the time of their stewardship through the whole world. They were the first depositories and the secondary dispensers. When the word of God is dispensed, it is so God might be glorified. It is dispensed so that the hearers would hear and change their ways and receive the truth. The most important truths of Scripture were set forth plainly for us. The truth of God the Creator, the sinfulness of, and salvation necessary for man by grace, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his death, burial, and resurrection, his second coming, the deity of the spirit, monotheism, the, the existence of heaven and hell, all of these things made plain and simple for us. But this doesn't mean that everything in the word of God is as clear as these central truths. 
Scripture is clear on matters of salvation and obedience in its teaching. The doctrine does not mean that all things are alike and clear in Scripture, as the Bible itself admits. We have, for example, the Apostle Peter who writes about Paul's letters that some things in them that are hard to understand. The Bible does not claim that everything which it teaches is plain in the same way that it teaches about creation, God, and redemption, and so on. There are things which are difficult, but there are things which are easy and plain. For those who want to receive the word of truth, it is important to note this is because it cautions us against drawing conclusions about metaphorical texts such as this. If any text requires diligent and interpretive work, it's, it's a text like this. This is a text full of symbolism, and, and not everyone wants to do the hard work. Countless people have uh, taken to websites on this passage and have uh, concluded that Romans 11 uh, about being broken off from God's people in Israel and, and their need to stand firm in the faith is by some way proving that you can indeed lose your salvation. There are a multitude of verses that we can look at to prove against that, but we do well to consider one. John chapter 6, verse 37 to 40 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of though of all that he had given me but raise it up on the last day there are indeed many things that can be said about this glorious passage this passage from the lips of our Lord it describes the perfect plan of the, within the Godhead for salvation of the elect, the Father who elects and gives a specific people to the Son, the Son who lays down his life for them, the Spirit who gives them life. In this way, the triune God is glorified. In verse 37, we read of a specific people given to the Son by whom the Father says, uh, will come to me, not might come to me. This is a definite coming on the part of those given. It is not conditional upon them, but it is conditional upon the fact that whether or not they have been given to the Son for salvation. Those who come to the Son will never be cast out of his loving presence. They will not be plucked out from his hand because they are secure in him. So this brings us to acknowledge with awe not only from this passage, but from the following verses, that we realize the redemptive power of God. Verses 23 says, and, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul is speaking of corporate categories. The Jews have been cut off in large measure, but not completely. And this is so that the Gentiles can be grafted in in large measures, but not completely. 
And so while there may be an erroneous view that would suggest that God is completely done with Israel, that he has completely cut them off, it's very important that we have reserved in our hearts and minds to understand the redemptive power of God, the desire to see all men come to him. Paul makes it clear that God is not done with them yet. And this goes on to prove Paul's point about correcting their arrogance, but also sets up his intended reasoning for this discussion, and, and that is to speak on the future of Israel. What is to become of them? What is to become of them? But what we see in view here is that the truth that is supported by Scripture, the calling on the name of the Lord is the basic and most necessary thing for salvation. And it presupposes faith in the Lord. God promises to save those who, in faith, which is important, call upon his name. We spoke in Sunday school about calling upon the name of the Lord as not being a, a magic word that one would say that automatically would allow you invitation into his presence, but something that had to be done in faith. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says. Even Israel, who has been cut off, can know the salvation of their patriarchs if they indeed call upon the name of the Lord. Everyone who invokes the name of God for mercy and salvation or in the name of Jesus, shall be saved. There is no salvation in anyone else. God has given no other name under heaven by which men would be saved. And so we do well to consider, especially in view of the testimony that we heard today, to be zealous, to consider those who are un in unbelief, to consider those who may seemingly be in the faith but need to understand and, and hear the gospel afresh. It is the name of the Lord that saves us. It is dependence upon God that we desire and that we need. It is the feeling of being present with him that allows us to experience and know what home truly feels like. And it is the destination by which we march as Christians that it is our Father's business to call others to join. So, in conclusion, will you truly realize the redemptive, restful power of God and salvation? Will you truly realize it? Hear the word of God calling you home. Calling you home. If you don't know the Lord, hear him calling you home today. Do not wander in sin, restless homeless, far from the presence of God, trust and believe in Christ. He has promised to give you rest. Call upon the name of the Lord today. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, God. We are always in awe, Lord, of the things that you have to say in it because, God, had it not been for your spirit, Lord, we would look at these words and not feel anything not know anything, not be able to experience you truly. Because, but because you have loved us and you have set your affection on us and you have changed our hearts and you have brought us back to life, Lord, we look at these words 
we consider you, we consider your revelation, God, and we are in awe. And we are so thankful, Lord, of all that you continue to do in our lives, all that you would hope for us to do and to be. And God, with the knowledge of that, we pray and we hope, Lord, that you would keep us from any and all arrogance, Lord, that would look to show our ungratitude, Lord, for the very honor that we did not deserve in you dispensing your gospel to us and making us alive. Let us consider the Jews, let us consider Israel, Lord, not with a sense of arrogance, but Lord, with a, a heart that looks at their current condition by and large, Lord, and says that the gospel needs to go there. The gospel needs to go there. We thank you, Lord, for the honor of your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would flesh out, Lord, all that it says and all that it intends for us to do. By your help, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.